1988, um, a writer, Philip Yancey, a Christian writer, he wrote this book called Disappointment with God. And in it, he tells about this one particular guy, a young man named Richard, who had become a Christ follower when he was in college, and which is unusual because most of the time, that's the time we tend to fall away from any kind of our spiritual upbringing. But he became a, a Christ follower in college. And he was so excited and just kind of so on fire and serious about his faith that he went on to study theology in graduate school. And in one particular class, he wrote a paper on the book of Job, the Old Testament scriptures of Job, and the professor thought it was so good, he thought it was worthy of being published as a book. So he encouraged him to pursue that. And um, so Richard contacted Philip Yancey, and, um, and he asked for his opinion on the paper and so forth, and Philip thought the same thing, that it was worthy of a book. So for many months, they talked back and forth, and they kind of worked on this manuscript, taking this um, paper that he had written and transforming it into a book. And it was only fitting then that Richard even asked Yancey to write the foreword for his book. Now, shortly before the book was about to be published, Richard called Philip Yancey. But this time, he sounded different. He sounded kind of tense and edgy, Yancey says. And he said that there was something that he felt he, he felt obligated to tell Yancey, and he just needed to do this in person. So he makes about an hour's drive, and uh, Yancey says, an agitated Richard showed up, and he said this. He said, the book that you helped me with, it's coming out next month, including your foreword. But the truth is, I don't believe what I wrote in that book anymore. And I feel I owe you an explanation. And he paused, and, and Yancey said he kind of just watched the lines of tension working in Richard's jaw, and then suddenly Richard just blurts out, I hate God. No, no, I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, I don't even believe in God. Wow. I mean, how does that happen? How does someone go from becoming a Christ follower to a theology student to writing a paper that's worthy of a book, to working on this book with this great uh, Christian writer, Philip Yancey, getting it published to I hate God. How does that happen? Well, I don't think Richard is all that alone. You know, the details may be different, but sadly, I think the theme and, and unfortunately even the outcome are ones that kind of thread through the stories of a lot of people, and I don't mean just people today in today's world, but we can go back even thousands of years, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Will you turn with me, uh, those Bibles near you, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to go to chapter 21, and you'll find that on page 1117. And the historical event uh, that we actually saw a little bit on a video clip there. We're going to read. Uh, it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's known as the triumphal entry. And the significant thing about this is that it took place less than a week before Jesus was crucified. It would have taken place on today what the church calls Palm Sunday. Um, and that's where this uh, celebration the church does, Palm Sunday, comes from this event in scriptures. So, so in chapter 21, let's read. It says, Now when they, meaning Jesus and his 12 disciples, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples telling them, Go to the village ahead of you. Right away you will find a donkey tied there and a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. 
And if anyone says anything to you, you are to say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the people of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, unassuming and seated on a donkey, on a coat, the fowl of a donkey. So that was in their scriptures, a prophecy that was given. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the coat, and they placed their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks along the road. Others cut branches from the trees, there's the palms, and they spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those following kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was just thrown into this uproar. They were saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This mob of Jewish people, they were just ecstatic. I mean, for them, it was kind of like, you know, they just won the Super Bowl. Their long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one of God, had come to save them. That's what Hosanna means, Hosanna in the highest, the one who's come to save us. And they shouted and they cheered as he entered the great city of Jerusalem because it meant that their Messiah, who'd been prophesied for so long ago, hundreds of years, he had finally come to save them. Now, Let's turn just a few pages over in your Bibles and go to chapter 27 now. What we read, just, what we just read, took place on Sunday, and what we're about to read now takes place the very next Friday. It's just five days later. Jesus has been arrested, and he's standing before the governor of Rome, uh, this area they were in, and it's Pontius Pilate. We all know that name. And Pontius Pilate doesn't know what to do with this guy, this Jesus. So beginning in verse 15, we read this. It says, During the feast, it was speaking of the Passover, the governor was accustomed to release one prisoner to the crowd, whomever they wanted. At that time, they had in custody a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So after they had assembled, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ, the Messiah? That's what Christ means. For he knew... He knew that they had handed him over because of envy, speaking of the religious leaders. As he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a message to him. It says, have nothing to do with that innocent man. I have suffered greatly as a result of a dream about him today. But the chief priests and the elders, they persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they shouted, Barabbas, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ, your Messiah? What am, what am I to do? And they all just shouted, crucify him. And he asked, why? What, what has he done? But they shouted more insistently, crucify him. That mob of Jewish people, they were still shouting and cheering. But from Sunday to Friday, it was in a very different way. How did that happen. I mean, how did the people go from these shouts of adoration and praise to these shouts of utter disdain and cursing in just a few days? What in the world did Jesus do between Sunday and Friday to cause such a drastic turn in their hearts? The answer to that question is nothing. Nothing. He did nothing. Meaning, he did none of the things that they expected him to do. 
You see, that day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, it was the fulfillment of a prophecy given to the nation of Israel through the prophets Daniel and Zechariah hundreds of years ago about this coming Messiah. And the prophecies, they were very specific, given again hundreds of years prior. And Jesus was now, he was fulfilling them to the T, the way he did it, when he came in, everything, prophecy fulfilled to the T. There was no doubt, no doubt that he was the long-awaited promised Messiah who had come from God, by God, sent by God to save the people, his people. The prophecy said that the Messiah would rule and reign as king from Jerusalem. So to the Jews that day, it it meant that Jesus had come to overthrow the Roman government. You know, they were going to kind of return Israel to the glory days. No more being under occupation and the rule of this foreign country. The triumphal entry, it was about a, a militaristic messianic uh, messiah who came to overthrow the Roman government. It's almost like the people were just passing out hats that day and they were shouting, make Israel great again! Make Israel great again! That's what they thought Jesus came to do and they were pumped on Sunday. They were pumped. The celebration on Sunday came and went. And the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday came and went with out much happening from what they expected to happen. And then on Thursday, Jesus, Jesus is arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and he's arrested that night. And Peter, he's ready to start the revolt. You know, he gets up, and he's ready to fight, cuts a guy's ear off. And then Jesus bends down, picks up the ear, and puts it back on, heals the man. And he's like, no, we're not going to fight. What do you mean? What do you mean? We're going to... No. And he leaves willingly. Then he goes through this series of trials, and he still didn't fight back. And what about, what about all these powerful miracles, though, that they had seen? I mean, just a few days before, he raised Lazarus from the dead. This power and these miracles, why wasn't he using his power now? What was going on? Why was he just taking it all, even allowing them to spit in his face? What kind of Messiah was he? Certainly not the kind that they expected. Not the kind that they wanted. Just go and crucify him. What use is he to us? What about those messianic prophecies? I mean, were they not really pointing to Jesus? Had had God misled them? Worse yet, had he played just a cruel trick on them? Not at all. Jesus was and is the promised Messiah, the Savior The problem was that the people in the mob, they didn't understand what that really meant. They didn't understand what it was that they really needed to be saved from. You see, they couldn't see um, beyond their desire for a Messiah to fix their immediate and earthly problem. The Romans that were ruling over them. They completely overlooked the prophecies given through Isaiah. This detailed description recorded in chapter 53 that describes this humble suffering, sacrificial servant as Messiah, not a, not a militaristic leader. So they had no understanding and, and, and perhaps no interest even in God's much bigger plan. The plan for a Messiah that was for all humanity, for all time, one who came to rescue humanity and restore, restore the trust between us and God. One who came to save us from the destructive force of sin in the world and in our lives. 
You know, Randy often reminds us of this, and, and I'm going to do the same today. What is the biggest problem in our world? The biggest problem in our world is distrust in Christ, our creator, that produces disobedience to his will. See, we don't trust him, so the way that he says that he's designed us to live, we, we're not going to follow that because we don't trust him. We don't really trust that it's for our best. Disobedience, distrust. How can this problem be solved? Trust can only be restored through God's willingness to patiently, consistently, and gently reveal himself and demonstrate his trustworthiness, as well as we human beings becoming convinced of sin's inevitable destructiveness. This is why Messiah Jesus came. He came to reveal God and, and his trustworthy character us, to, to show us his heart, you know, to show us the very heart of God and how good he is, how compassionate, merciful, tender, gentle, and to demonstrate then the depth of his love by sacrificing himself on a cross. And then to also demonstrate through his miracles and through the resurrection, his power to rescue us, to truly fix us and what's wrong with this broken world. Now, you know, I think it's kind of hard for us so many thousands of years later. It's just kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around this whole idea of Jesus dying on a cross. Like, why was that necessary? What was the point of that? What do you mean he died for me? And that's, that's hard. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us today. And that, that's a whole message in itself. But what we do understand is this, that the real measure of love is sacrifice. Don't we know that? I mean, somebody can tell you that they love you over and over again. They can say it every day. Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. Or they can buy you wonderful things. But it's when we see someone make a sacrifice of some kind for us, whether it's in a big way or small way, that's, that's when we're like, wow, they really do love me. They really do love me. They're willing to set themselves aside and, and serve me or sacrifice for me. Christ demonstrated that kind of love, just how much God loves us by sacrificing himself. But the mob that day, they, couldn't, they just couldn't see past their present uncomfortable condition and their immediate earthly need. Just get us out from under the thumb of, of Rome, you know, under Rome's thumb. Make Israel great again. Restore our glory days. And so they were disappointed. God let them down. Just like Richard Richard said God had let him down in a big way, and he explained it to Yancey. He explained all the ways that God had let him down, his path from the theology student to God-hater. He said while he was in college, his parents divorced. And he said that he had prayed and prayed, and he even quit school for a time and, and went home to try to be a stabilizing force, but they still divorced. And he said it was his first very bitter experience with unanswered prayer. And then after school, this job opportunity fell through, and it was one that he was promised. You know, he was promised to the employer. He reneged on him, and he gave the job to someone who was less qualified. And so he was left just with this mound of school debt and uh, no source of income. And then right around the same time, Richard's fiancée left him. No warning, he said. 
She broke contact, refused to give any explanation for her abrupt change of heart. And worse, she had kind of played a big role in his spiritual growth. So as she left, he felt like some of his faith just kind of leached away as well. And he just couldn't understand why a loving heavenly father would let him suffer such disappointment. He couldn't understand it. No earthly father would treat his children like that. I bet we all know someone with a story similar to Richard's, you know. And perhaps we are that someone. I have a friend from college whose fifth child, his name was Matthew. He was born in the early 90s, but within two years, he died of leukemia. And I have this little group of college friends that we've stayed together through all the years, and we get together about once a year. And so just a couple years after this tragedy, we got together. And, um, and we all just, we cried together as Fran shared her pain and her sorrow. But Fran shared more that day. She shared her tremendous disappointment that had turned to anger toward God. How can you say God loves Matthew? How can you say that? How can you say God cares? How can you say that? And this group of college friends, still to this day, we get together once a year. And I can tell you, friends, disappointment with God still runs just as deep, just as deep. You know, most of our stories maybe, probably aren't quite as big as Richard's or Fran's. Yet I bet if we really just looked inside, we just might find that lodged deep in our soul somewhere is some disappointment as well. I mean, we've never maybe labeled it as that, but we might just have some of the symptoms the symptoms of a deflated soul. Singer and author Sheila Wash, she says this. She says, disappointment is a harsh word. It speaks of failure, of frustration. She says, the word sits right down on your soul and it utterly deflates it. Do you have the symptoms of a deflated soul this morning? I found a list of symptoms in a book that I, I read back some time ago, a long time ago. Actually, I mean, it's a book that I wrote a long time ago uh, because it's called Kim's Journal. So all I'm doing is speaking from past experiences. Perhaps you're walking around with a sadness and then kind of like a low-grade depression, but you can't even seem to pinpoint why. Or you find yourself just kind of feeling disconnected from God. He just feels so far away and truth be told, you don't even care a whole lot. In your spiritual life, it, it has no life at all. It's as, it's as if you're just kind of going through the motions. You've lost all your excitement and your enthusiasm for spiritual things, for learning and, and for growing and serving and sharing. You've lost your enthusiasm for life. And you don't know how in the world to get it back. A deflated soul. Sound familiar to anyone? Feel familiar to anyone? And maybe there's another cause, you know, of those things. But maybe, just perhaps, maybe, maybe there's some disappointment 
lodged in our souls. Sheila Wash also says this. She says, of all the issues that seem to hound us, disappointment appears to debilitate us more than most. Debilitate us. That's a strong word. And left unattended, folks, it's true. Disappointment can have a devastating impact not only on our spiritual well-being, but just as much on our physical well-being, our emotional, mental well-being, and our relational well-being. So we must, we must get to the root of our disappointment. And the root of our disappointment, it's no mystery. I mean, we've already said it several times already, and we even find it in the definition of the word. Look at the definition for disappointment. Disappointment is the feeling of sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. Expectations, that's our problem, right? No. Expectations aren't our problem. The wrong expectations are our problem. See, some people would say, well, just don't have any expectations in life, and then you'll never be disappointed. Does that really work, really? It's about having the right expectations. The wrong expectations are a problem. Jesus was and is the Messiah. He just wasn't the kind of Messiah that they expected him to be. And sometimes God isn't the kind of God that we expect him to be. He's not the kind of God we expect him to be when we lose our job. I'm like, whoa, what? what? God? He's not the kind of God we expect him to be when years go by and we're still single, still alone, never met that someone. He's not the God we expect him to be when we get those bad test results. But I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. He's not the kind of God we expect when our kids turn out bad. How'd that happen? It's not the kind of God we expect when life just isn't fair. And if we look deeper, I think if we look deeper, there's another kind of expectation that's also at the root of a lot of our disappointment. They kind of go hand in hand, and it's our expectation of life. You know, I think it's kind of funny. Tell me if you relate to this. Around our 20s, I think we kind of start to form this idea of what kind of life we're going to make for ourselves. You know, we start to see our future, and we're like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to have this, I'm going to do that. There's my life. I see it all in ahead, and I'm going to pursue that. And then one day, it's around the age 50, you find yourself sitting on the edge of your bed, and you're dazed and confused, and you think, what happened? What ha- this is not what I planned. This is not what I expected my life to be at this point. And we sometimes discover then we have this deflated soul. The problem isn't life, and the problem isn't God. The problem is our wrong expectations of both. And you know, as people living in in a first world country, now in the 21st century, man, we have some expectations, don't we? Don't we? I mean, we got a lot of them. And we tend to have this belief. I think we're kind of uh, driven by this belief or this expectation, whether we realize it or not. But, But we're driven by this idea that life on this planet is about happiness, My happiness, to be more exact, my happiness. The ultimate goal in life is to live a happy life. And we each have our own kind of unique idea of what a happy life looks like. And so if you're kind of like people like us that do this 
church thing and you factor God into your life equation, within you even come up with this whole different idea about life and this expectation. And it can kind of be summed up like this in this equation for life. My plan for my life plus God on my side equals my happiness, right? I mean, obviously, I know what's best for me. I know myself better than anybody else. I know what makes me happy, and so I'm going to go and pursue what makes me happy. And then I'll do the things I need to do to get God, all-powerful, almighty God, on my side. You know, I'll, I'll do the church thing, and I'll give some money, and I'll say some prayers, and I'll be a nice person, so then I can get God working for me. And you put those two together, man, my plans plus God's power, bam, happy life. I got me a happy life. That is, until God doesn't seem to be cooperating with my plan. I mean, he's not responding the way I want, and he's not preventing some things from happening to me that I don't want to happen, and he's not answering my prayers the way I want. So I started to get frustrated and disappointed with God and with life. And perhaps even I start to move toward bitterness and anger. All because I had the wrong expectations. You know, Jesus spelled out very clearly one time for us what we can expect out of life. It's recorded in the Gospel of John. During this time on planet Earth, he tells us very clearly, here's what you can expect. He said, in this world... You will have trouble. Trouble. You will. You, not you might, you will. In another translation, it says it this way. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. So what can we, what should we expect out of our lives? Trouble, trials, and sorrows. There you go. It's my encouraging word for the day. Amen. Gee, thanks, Kim. I feel so much better. <laughs> Hold on. Let me say this. You know, that, that perfect life that we each long for and the perfect world that we each long for, it will come one day. Jesus promises us, us, us this. It's in Revelation chapter 21. God promises us this future where there will be no more pain, no more trouble, no more sorrow, no more sickness, suffering of any kind. Our wanting this isn't the problem. Our expecting it right now is the problem. And our expecting it to look the way we want it to look, be the way we want it to be, that's the problem. You see, we're in an age where God's eternal plan, it's still in progress right now. I mean, Randy just spent six weeks telling us about God's Big picture, and this is all in process. God's big plan and his eternal plan. And his plan is still being worked out right now, which means for now, God is allowing sin and evil to exist in our world. He's allowing it for now. We ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, so we are knowing firsthand what this sin and evil thing is all about. And so he's allowing it. And along with the sin and the evil that exists in our world, along with that is the trouble and the hardship and the sickness and the sorrow and the injustice and the cruelty and the suffering and the death that it all brings with it. And the thing is, too, it shows no favoritism. None whatsoever. 
I mean, good people and bad people, young people, old people, God lover and God hater, we all experience the trouble and the trials and the sorrows of this world. It's kind of like a great theologian and country music singer. They often go hand in hand. Did you know that? Mary Chapin Carpenter. She wrote and sang a song, The Bug. Sometimes you're the windshield and sometimes you're the bug. Sometimes it all comes together. Sometimes you're going to lose it all. You got to know happy. You got to know glad because you're going to know lonely and you're going to know sad because sometimes you're the windshield. Sometimes you're the bug. Cross the board. And folks, that's why we desperately, desperately need to grasp the remedy for our disappointment. And the, remedy, and the remedy begins with this paradigm shift, this new way of seeing life and understanding what it's all about. We've got to have a new equation for life, one that looks something more like this. God's plan for humanity and eternity, that's at the center of it. God's plan for us and for all eternity, plus my trust and my cooperation with him equals my development. You see, life isn't about my happiness. Life is about my development here on planet Earth, my development as a human being. And just as we develop our physical bodies through struggle and through, through pressure and pain, so it is with our character and with our souls, with our inner selves, our real selves. It's through struggle and pain that you and I develop. There's a, a president of a school of theology said this, he said, crises of every kind will find us. In this world, you will have trouble. These crises enter our lives not just as challenges, but as invitations. Invitations to what? To stretch our hearts and minds. An invitation for us to move from being good people to becoming great people. Great people. Life is about growing and developing into, developing into mature, loving human beings just like Christ, the best we can be. But that's not going to happen in a vacuum. A life free from trouble and hardships will not produce that kind of growth and development in a human being. It won't. And that's why James, he writes this in his letter. James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. And he wrote this. He said, my brothers and sisters, you will have many kinds of troubles. There it is again. You will have trouble. But this gives you a reason to be very happy. What? Happy? Why can I be happy? You know that when your faith is tested, you learn to be patient in suffering. Other translations use the word perseverance and the word endurance. If you let the patience, the endurance, the perseverance work in you, the end result will be good. The trouble isn't good, but the end result is good. You will be mature. You'll grow up and complete. You will be all that God wants you to be. At the age of 29, the star of Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox, he was diagnosed at that time with Parkinson's disease. And he once said this about that disease. He says, coping with the relentless assault and the accumulating damage has not been easy, Nobody would ever choose to have this visited upon them. That's for sure. But in 2013, Fox also called the season since his diagnosis as the best 10 years of his life. Not in spite of his illness, 
but because of it. Look how he explains this. He says, if you were to rush into this room right now and announce that, they had, that you had struck a deal in which the 10 years since my diagnosis could be magically taken away, traded in for 10 more years as the person I was before, I would, without a moment's hesitation, tell you to take a hike. I would never want to go back to that life. A sheltered, narrow existence fueled by fear and made livable by insulation, isolation, and self-indulgence. Oh, that's powerful, isn't it? I mean, there's no evidence that he's a Christ follower or anything, and yet he still sees the value. Take a hike. I will never go back. I don't ever want to go back to that life and that person that I was before this trial. Life isn't about being happy. Life is about growing and developing into mature, beautiful, loving human beings, the best we can be, human beings who are just like Christ. And folks, that will often make us and the people around us very happy, very happy. One more time. Our equation for life, God's plan for humanity and eternity, plus my trust and my cooperation equals my development. With this paradigm shift, this new way of looking at life and God, we can approach our troubles and our hardships in a whole new way. And instead of expecting and, and reaching for something that just will probably never be, instead we can reach out and grasp hold of something that is real, of truth. There are five truths that I believe we must hold tightly to if we are going to grow and develop and make it through this life. I have shared these so many times. I've shared them in other messages. I recently shared them at a women's retreat, and I will unashamedly keep doing so because I have discovered that these basic truths have transforming power for our hearts and our minds and our lives. I even wrote a lesson for our elementary school kids because I thought, man, as a child, if you can get this basic understanding now, these five truths about what's true about our God, and you can hold on to that for life, you will do well. So when we made this for the kids, we had some little motions to go with it too. And I'm going to share those with you today. Because, you know, Jesus said a lot of times, come, you know, he talks about having childlike faith. You know, he, he honors the children and so much for us too. We just need childlike trust and faith. So here we go. The first truth to grasp hold of and um, grasp and hold on to is the, the truth that God is good. He is good. That is the makeup of his character. Psalm 119, it says, you are good and you do only good. Bad things happen in this world without a doubt, but that doesn't make God bad. He is good. We have seen his beauty and his goodness in Jesus. So our little reminder God is good. God is good. All right, that's the first one. Second truth to hold on to is that God loves me. God loves me. Psalm 52, it says, I will always trust in God's unfailing love. I love that, that word, unfailing. His love will never fail me, fail me. He proved how much he loves me when he sacrificed himself on a cross for me. That's the measure of real love. So it doesn't matter what's going on in my life, what bad things are happening. I never question his love for me. He loves me. Third truth I hold on to is the truth that God is faithful. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. And in Psalm 100, it says, for the Lord is good. There it is again. Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. 
And his faithfulness it continues to each generation. Our God keeps his promises. We have to understand and know for sure exactly what he's promised. And he promises a wonderful, perfect life in the future. Not right now. Not yet. And he's faithful. He will keep that promise. So during this time of, of pain and troubles and heartache and hardships, he gives us another promise. Here's one of the promises that he's faithful to. Number four, he's with me. He's with me. God is with me. He promises. He says, don't be afraid for I'm with you. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. You will walk through the fire of oppression. You will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. You are precious to me. Can you let that sink in today? You are precious to me, our God says. I love you. So don't be afraid for I'm with you. And in the New Testament, Hebrews, he says, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. We are never, ever alone in our struggles and our trials and sorrows, our suffering. We're not alone. He's, he's with us. And not only is he with me, but truth number five I hold on to is that God gives me strength. God gives me strength. Psalm 29 says, the Lord gives his people strength. And Isaiah, I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Our God promises that he is, he is with us and that he will give us the strength that we need to make it through all the troubles, the hardship, the heartache for each day, just enough for each day. He promises that if we will turn to him. So God is good and God loves me. God is faithful. God is with me. God gives me strength. Childlike faith. It's the kind I need. Basic truths are what get me through. You know, as I worked on this message, I found myself wondering, whatever happened to Richard? He'd, from the, my math calculations, he'd be around that 50-year mark now. And wouldn't it be just the perfect closer if I had found out um, what happened to Richard? And if I could tell you the story of how Richard turned back to God, you know, how he was able to process and heal from his disappointment and how he found this new joy and purpose in his life, that he held on, held on to those five truths about our God. Wouldn't that be awesome? But I have no idea what happened to Richard. And besides, it's not really about Richard, is it? Today, in this moment, it's about you and it's about me. We can't write Richard's story, but we can write our own stories. And so how I hope and pray that we begin today writing a new story, each one of us, a new story for our lives, a story that begins with a paradigm shift where we learn to expect trouble in this world. We won't be surprised anymore by it. It's the world we live in. Jesus told me that. And a story in which we stop expecting and pursuing our own happiness and instead we wholeheartedly pursue spiritual or, or growth and development as a human being, just becoming better people. If that becomes our purpose and our the thing that we go after. And a story where every page is filled with us just kind of grasping and holding tightly to the truth about Christ, our creator. The truth that he is good and he loves us and he's faithful, and he's with us, and he gives us the strength that we need through it all, through it all.
Because what else, what else would you expect from a good, good father? And that's what he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the reminders this morning of who you are and what you're really like. And I pray that you just help each one of us, wherever we're at this time in our lives, whatever trials, whatever disappointment we're dealing with, you'll help us to process it. And you'll help us to move past it, unlodge it from our souls, inflate our souls again as we hold on to the truth of who you really are. You are our good, good Father, and we thank you. In Jesus' name.